Hey, this is Alex Byrod of Silent Force, Voodoo Circle, Primal Fear, Sinner, and Rock Meat Classic, and you guys are listening to Focus on Metal. Hey Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal. As this week we finally wrap up our massive Kerrang! project. That's right, it's been a huge, huge project for us. Started way back on episode 315. Uh, that puppy we actually got on the line with the one and only Malcolm Dome. And then I'll follow that one up on episode 320 with uh, talk with Xavier Russell at 326. We talk with Stefan Shirazi on episode 330 was Howard Johnson. On uh, 338, we talked with Derek Oliver. Then on 341, and then again on 343, we talked with Sylvie Simmons. And then after that, uh, well, there was a large gap until we got to about 358. We got on the line with Dante Benuto. And you can see how this project, as it got longer and longer, the spacing started to get further and further out. So then... uh, didn't hear back again from us on the Kerrang! Project until episode 373 with uh, one of our favorite interviews. That is with Crusher Jewel. Great interview. Uh, you want to enjoy that one, head back to episode 373 to, to hit that one up. And then again, uh, you know, big gaps again on that one until we got to uh, one of our more recent ones with uh, Kerrang! number 10 with Mick Wall and uh, one of our perennial favorite guests, Joel MacGyver. And then last week, of course, wrapping it up with the first half of Richie's chat with Dave Reynolds. And, you know, so much going on with that chat that it ended up being that here we are with uh, Kerrang! episode 11.5 as we continue on with uh, with Richie's uh, chat with Dave Reynolds. Now, I know you might be saying, hey, wait a minute, you just talked about Sylvie having two, and uh, you know, those were two different episode numbers, but the fact is, is that Sylvie actually gave Richie two different interviews. And the easiest way to probably listen to all of those various episodes is go up to focusonmetal.net, and right there on the homepage, as you scroll down, you'll find all those Kerrang! ones. A whole bunch of the early ones are all gathered together in one big clump, and the others are kind of filtered through the episodes, but you click right on there, bring you right over and start streaming that episode. We uh, we tried to make it easy for you. So this week, like I said, we're going to wrap up with the rest of his chat with Dave Reynolds and actually going to go back probably about a minute or so into the prior episode just to have a good cut point of rolling you into the conversation with Dave. And then after that, we'll uh, just kind of do a little bit of a wrap party with Richie and I talking about the project, wrapping this puppy up and preparing to continue to launch into November. But before we get back into that chat, I thought that uh, for some oddball reason, it would be appropriate this week to do a track of the week. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, track of the week, what are you talking about? You've never done a track of the week during any project episode ever. 
but I just thought it'd be just a fun look back. You know, on uh, on June 1st, 1981 is when Kerrang! actually launched. So going back to that issue and seeing all the bands that were in there, the actual cover photo itself is an awesome classic shot of Angus Young with his ever-present SG. Uh, Not the one he typically uses these days, but anyways, it's him and his SG. But they're talking about the fact that inside there you got Motorhead, Girls' School, UFO, Saxon, Kiss, Trust, Shanker, Wild Horses, Pat Benatar, ZZ Top, Styx, Vardis, The Nuge, Blackfoot, Graham Bonnet, Ronnie Montrose, and Rose Tattoo. So first thing, of course, as I look at that is to think that is a pretty amazing selection of artists to kick off a, a magazine. Something in there for everybody. But right now, of course, you know, we, we're talking about track of the week And, uh, you know, just going back and saying, well, who was featured in that first episode and who should we roll out as a final Kerrang! project track of the week? Is there really any question here? It's got to be some Motorhead. Definitely interesting trying to pick a Motorhead track from uh, June of 1981. You have to figure that they released Ace of Spades back in November of 1980. Wouldn't be releasing Iron Fist until 1982. And then, of course, with the you know live albums, which is what I ultimately used, is uh, that was released on June 27th of 81, which is actually after this issue came out. And then the only thing that would be even closer to the date that would be in 81 would, of course, be that classic St. Valentine's Day Massacre with... Uh, girl school as being head girl that was in february of 81 that's actually a great uh, great ep if you can get your hands on it but ultimately i decided you know what go with a little bit of classic stuff off of no sleep till hammersmith and there you go track of the week from motorhead and that of course then leads us right into this week's chat as we continue just a little bit back from where we left off last week so Leave it to uh, to Richie and Dave to uh, to do the talking. 
So I'm, go- I'm going to throw a few names at you, Dave, and you can tell me whether you've interviewed him or not. Um, Blackie Lawless. Blackie Lawless, yes, I have interviewed Blackie Lawless a couple of times. And how did you find him to interview? Because he comes across as a very educated guy. He is. I, I enjoy talking to him. Um, I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he's, he's a very, very nice guy. He's, he's very articulate, and, and he gives he gives a very good interview. You could you feel comfortable knowing that you'll get a good interview out of him. What about Dee Schneider? Dee Schneider, um, I'd never never interviewed him for Kerrang, but he was one of the first interviews that I did when Steve Hammonds and I um, were doing a fanzine called White Lightning, and this was before um, I ever wrote for initially for Kerrang or. Um, for Metal Forces. We met the, um, when they were, when Twisted Sister first came over to the UK. Um, and um, they, th- we contacted Secret Records who put out their first EP. And they said, yeah, go along to, to Maiden Studios around the corner from Chelsea Football Club in Fulham. And, um, and you know, you can, you can meet the guys. So they were recording their debut album there with Pete Way. And they just invited us in, made us a cup of tea. And they were brilliant. Dee was everything I expected him to be and more. He was just this real larger-than-life character, even without the makeup and, and clothes and everything like that. Um, and he gave that's brilliant quote. See, he took us into the studio. We listened to a couple of the of the tracks that they were putting on the new album and everything. And then um, we got put on the guest list for their marquee shows that they played about a few days later. So, um, an absolutely brilliant guy. Nice. And what about Kevin DeBrow? Kevin DeBrow, I met him again when he when he was with Quiet Right and they first came over to the UK on a mental health tour. And again, he was extremely friendly, um, was happy to talk about Quiet Riot, and, um, and again, again gave a, a sound interview for, I think, that went in Metal Forces. And unfortunately, I never interviewed him again, but kind of um, sort of reconnected with him um, short, well, maybe a year or so before he passed away. Um, so there was, but I never got the opportunity to really do anything with any of the, the stuff that we talked about. Yeah. Now, now, which of the guys in Motley Crue do you think gave the best interview? Hmm. Um, probably um, Nicky. Okay. Um, I first met Motley Crue when they came over in the Mitch Payne tour and I interviewed Nick Mars for Metal Forces. And then I probably then reconnected with I did an interview with Vince Neil just before he got booted out or left or whatever when Decadence was released mm-hmm. and then um, I went to LA to interview the band when John Karabi was involved with them um, and that kind of, it kind of helped that I knew Karabi from the scream and he was actually um, touted for the Britney Fox job um after Dizzy Dean left, but he just he turned it down because he didn't want to leave LA, and so he was there, and Tommy Lee was there, and Nicky Six and, and Mick Mars. So I think, but out of all of them, Nicky Six was probably the the best interview because he was he came across as being a fan of music and a fan of the same kind of stuff that I'd grown up on, like Sweet and Slade and, and Angel and Kiss and stuff like that. So we kind of connected on that level. Yeah, and what about the guys in Kiss? Did you ever interview Gene or Paul? Yeah. 
Yeah, um, a number of times actually. Um, I was a huge Kiss fan growing up, and uh, how I got into music writing was about doing my own Kiss fanzines for my own amusement, really. The first time I met Kiss was when they did a signing at Virgin Records in Oxford Street in London. And that was quite interesting because I asked Paul, I was a fanboy then, this was like late 1982, huge Kiss fan, um, went up there, Ace 3D promptly fell over because he was drunk after he saw my album. Hmm. Eric Carl was cool. I asked Paul, Paul Stanley a question about what Desmond Child was doing at that point because he'd kind of disappeared about um, that period because I was a huge fan of Desmond Child and Rouge. Um, and I knew that Paul had, had co-written stuff with him, you know, I was made for loving him. So I asked Paul this question, what's Desmond Child doing now? And he completely ignored me. <laughs> so that kind of put me in the frame of mind, like, I don't really want this guy's poster on my wall anymore. <laughs> so I went home and I had to tell you, not, I tell you no lie, that I took all posters of Paul Stanley off my wall. And I think I sold them to one of the, the singer in, in the band Rocks. Or gave, no, I gave them to the singer in the band Rocks. And he still has those posters to this day. But what I found out since is that Paul Stanley had a deformed ear at that point, And he, and he couldn't hear in that side so he probably didn't hear what I told I asked him yeah. uh, which kind of makes sense now but there I just thought he'd ignore my question so for a long time I just didn't like Paul Stanley very much <laughs> but, <laughs> which is ridiculous but there yeah. we go but when I when I um, joined Kerrang um, one around the summer of 88 uh, I got offered the chance to go to New York to interview them um, and um, interview and, and made a, a point of actually interviewing Paul uh, over Gene because I wanted to find out is this guy really an ignorant snob or it, what, was I just was I just experiencing him on a bad day? And it was absolutely fine. We had this hour-long interview that we discussed all the stuff about Desmond Child and Ruse, the history of Kiss, etc. Um, and over the years, I've I've met Gene on a number of occasions. He's always been absolutely fine fine with me, although I, I know that he can be a bit of an arsehole to, to certain individuals, and they're not particularly nice to women either, from what I can understand from some of the stuff that's been banded about about him um, thus far. Um, but I think I've pretty much, apart from Vinnie Vincent, I've met a fortunate to meet every member of KISS, um, and uh, Peter Chris has been a bit of a, I know he was a bit grumpy, um, to say the least when I met him at a KISS convention in London. But, you know, it, sometimes it's it's best not to meet your heroes or at least not have this kind of um, big impression of them that they're going to be these amazing people when they're really sometimes just you and I when we can have off days is just as much as anybody. Yeah, tell me, um, about, tell me, tell me Dave, about Eric Carr. You, you, you must Eric have met Carr. Eric Carr, yeah. Yeah, I met Eric Carr a couple of times. Obviously, the first time I met Eric was um, was at that Kiss signing, and he was he was impressed with the Gene Simmons jumper that I was wearing that my mum had made <laughs> from the Stone <Stereo> album. <laughs> I still have that actually. Okay, <laughs> it looks really cool. Um, and I then met Eric a couple of times after that. Last time I met him was at um, in 1988 at. It was at backstage at the Monsters of Rock show in East Rutherford, New Jersey, where Metallica were playing. And I remember um, him, he was producing uh, an all-girl band called Harry Carey at the time. And he was he was with these girls. 
but he seemed to be they seemed to be irritated by the fact that he was following him around. And at one time, one of these girls quite rudely turned around and says, "Why are you why are you following us like a little dog?" And so and I really felt for the guy because he was just <laughs> trying to be friendly, and and uh, it was it was horrible. And I, when I told Gene this, Gene just thought that was hilarious that he'd just been. You know, sort of like um, told off by these girls, like as if Gene's never had that's never happened to Gene. <laughs> so, but no, he was he was a really good guy, really good guy. Yeah. What about um Sebastian Bach? Did you ever interview him? Yeah, Sebastian Bach was uh, this pretty much outrageous character um, who could um, have mood swings, um, quite severe mood swings actually, and I've seen that happen where he can just change where he's happy one minute and then somebody will tell him something and then he just goes into completely opposite direction. Um, but I remember him um, specifically when um, uh, Skid Row did a signing in Shades Records, which I used to work part-time in, um, where uh, my friend Cal Powell-Rose used to work, and they did a signing and he basically, Sebastian came in and basically stole a load of stuff <laughs> and got away with it. You know, we had these Japanese burn magazines and import albums and everything. And he was just basically, he took, he took what he wanted because he was Sebastian back. You know, he was in Skid Row. They were big at the time. And, um, you know, and he actually, um, around that period, um, Kelf tells me a story that, um, he got he hooked up with the, the singer from Tiger Tail, Stevie James at that time. And they went out, um, drinking and they turned up outside Kelv's house one day or one night actually and like Sebastian was so tall that he actually was shouting at Kelv through because Kelv lived in a, um, a ground floor flat at the time and shouting through Kelv's bedroom window saying Kelv I'll put up with Sebastian I want to see your import albums man and I can and Kelv's wife at the time just told him if you don't go away I'm going to fuck Kelv phone the police <laughs> <laughs> so he left with his tail between his legs yeah I'm reading Sebastian's book and I've nearly finished it and nothing in the book has made me change my opinion of him anyway what I had in the before I always he always yeah. came across as like a little bit childish um yeah. you know a bit of, of a definite ego big time yeah. and um yeah. you know you you I just wanted to ask you about him because you obviously you've interviewed him a few times so another yeah. another another couple of bands I, I don't know whether you've interviewed or not um faster pussycat yes um, I interviewed them once. I was supposed to interview them for Metal Forces, but for some reason I decided not to. And so Kelv went in my place. And then they um, they sent back a signed album um, with the words from Tammy to say, this pussy doesn't stink. So what on earth Kelv told them about me, I've no idea. <laughs> but obviously he said that I'd hated them and that's why I didn't turn up for the interview, which wasn't the case at all. I still got sound yeah, well, I did go to, I did yeah. go to interview them um, in the early 90s in, in LA and we were supposed to do a, a piece on, on Tame Me Down at Home or Tie Me Down I don't know how you pronounce his surname or his, his first name I think it's Tie Me or Tie Me whatever yeah whatever yeah he we, we, we planned to do this this thing um, about rock stars at home so we turn up at his his apartment or his house in, in the hills um, only to, for him to tell us that he's actually moving to back to the northwest, um, and that basically he didn't have anything in his house, so we couldn't discuss anything. So there was no point in doing the interview. Wow! 
<laughs> um, but we then arranged to do a band interview at their rehearsal studio, which was uh, pretty cool. So we um, we did that, and he was he was a good guy as well. Um, very very generous with his time and, and very articulate. Yeah. What What about the guys in LA Guns? Did you interview Phil at all? Being a fellow Englishman. No, I've, I've never never interviewed um, LA Guns. Unfortunately, I, I don't know why. It just wasn't that. Just wasn't one of those bands that came my way really. And I wasn't particularly a big fan of the album when it, the first time when it came out at the time. But over the years, it's kind of grown on me a little bit. And then the new one's quite good. Yeah, the missing piece. It is. I've actually seen. I saw yeah. them. I saw them a couple of months ago. They were they were a good good live band still. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. What about the um? You mentioned Great White before that you saw them in the marquee. You must have interviewed them over the years. Yeah, I interviewed um, Jack Russell and and um, and the guitarist. I can't remember what his name. Uh, Mark, Mark Kendall. Mark Kendall. That's his. That's him. I interviewed them a few times. Um, one of the uh, more recently, I've interviewed Jack Russell for for Rock Candy Mag. Um, it's pretty sad the way things have turned out for him, really, but. Um, you know he, that's that's how he's lived his life, and um, but yeah, I went to went to see them in Salt Lake City about 1989, 1990. I know Michael the Macaulay Shank group and Havana Black were supporting them, and it was in Salt Lake City, and that that was really weird because this venue um, was obviously in the heart of Mormon country, and I've never seen. Um, a venue that had been left with so many miniature bottles of booze on the floor afterwards. The, the floor was covered in miniature bottles of booze. That's only happened in Salt Lake City. That's weird. Yeah. Did you ever interview any of the Van Halen guys or, or Hagar or David Lee Roth? I've never interviewed David Lee Roth, unfortunately, but I did interview Eddie Van Halen um, for the Balance album. And that was um, and that was just over the phone. Um, but I did encounter them quite regularly when I toured with Crown of Thorns and Bon Jovi in, in 1995 because Van Halen played a few of the stadium gigs that they were at. So I was able to, to stand at the side of the stage and, and see Van Hagar go through the motions. Um, wasn't particularly a big fan of, of Sammy Hagar fronted Van Halen. I like Sammy Hagar and the solo artist, but it, I was always a Roth guy as far as Van Halen were concerned. Yeah, yeah, and w- there's some of the English bands they tried to copy that style. Like the Tiger Tales is one, and yeah. FM is another one. They never made it, and e- the likes of Thunder. Um, did you champion those in the magazine? Because Thunder especially seems to be a band that a lot of the Kerrang writers in the late '80s, early '90s all loved, and and they never just they never broke the states. That's that's weird because they had everything required of them to actually break the stakes. And I, I really don't know why, whether it's a record company that let them down or not, because every record that they've done, pretty much bar none, has been superb. And I, I was a big fan of them, and I, I went to Japan with them as well. Um, and uh, they were a great band, and they're a great bunch of guys as well. With, with the musical chops, they had great songs, and I really don't know why the stakes didn't... Um, get them. I can only think it's a record company problem that they had there where they just weren't promoted um, well enough in order to to make that breakthrough. Same could be said for Little Angels as well. Yeah. Um, huge. And they had everything needed to, to get get um, pushed out, pushed through the States. And again, that's another um, uh, band that never, never really got um, the, the right opportunities over there either. 
Yeah, I thought their first album, Don't Pray For Me, was really good. And uh, Young Gods was pretty popular in, in the UK, but yeah, they never really oh, made yeah. it in the States. No, I think Toby Jetson is one of the finest songwriters that this country has ever produced. Yeah, I think he's um, he produces now, doesn't he? And he, he, I think he's got a new band actually. What I'm it's, yeah, Way with Sons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah the Santa Frontiers. Okay, oh, for, everyone's on Frontiers now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just a couple Some of, of the bands that rock Frontiers don't even know they're on Frontiers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so just a, a couple of couple of other names I have to throw your way. Um, yeah. Richie Blackmore. Did you ever interview Richie? Um, no, um, okay. never was a particularly big fan of Richie, although I met him a couple of times and I played football against him um, when we had a, a, a Kerrang football team, and Howard will probably tell you a lot about um, playing against Richie Blackmore, um, because we were due to play, um, the Inter-Kerrang team were due to play against Deep Purple uh, with Richie Blackmore in the lineup, and Steve Harris from Iron Maiden was supposed to play for Kerrang. But somehow, overnight, Richie tapped him up and he ended up turning out playing for Deep Purple instead. <laughs> but Richie was really weird because he kept on going off and, and had a substitute come on to replace him for 10 minutes. And then Richie got back on again. And we allowed this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you gave a, a good interview then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think someone gave him a good kicking on a pitch. <laughs> <laughs> what about... Um... What about the Def Leppard guys? You must have crossed paths with, with those guys. Yeah, um, Def Leppard primarily. Um, I remember certainly going to see them in Barcelona, in in Spain, and doing a, an interview piece on them around 93, 94, something like that. Up until then, they were basically uh, all the, the, the sort of like people like Mick Wall and... Um, uh, Derek and Howard and, and people like that would be interviewing Def Leppard, but I, I sort of first interviewed them around 93, 92, 93, I think. But I had encountered them on various, various things before that. Um, Joe, Joe Elliott is another big football guy, so he, he supports um, Sheffield United, and uh, um, a couple of, of friends of mine used to play for Sheffield United, so that was quite uh, an interesting coincidence. Yeah, what, 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 and you've got, you saw a ton of shows when you were working for Kerrang. What are what, what are the best live gigs you ever saw? Do any stand out for you? The best gigs I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, when I was with Kerrang, um, Dan Reed Network at the Marquee. Um, um, let's think. Most of the ones I can really remember are the ones that I that I saw when I was working for Metal Forces, actually, or even before that. The best show, the best band I've ever seen live is Diamond Head, um, and that was in 1982, and Status Quo back in the 70s. Um, there was um, Mother's Finest as another really great band I've seen. Uh, Warrant and Poison put on a good show in Charlotte that, that that trip I went over to see them. Scorpions um, were always good value. Def Leppard, definitely Metallica, when they first played in the UK um, uh, at the Marquee, and actually saw them support Venom in Belgium a few weeks before that as well. So we're there right there in the, you know, at the beginning, really, for them. Yeah. Um, 
lot. I think Kiss have put on some pretty good shows, but probably one of the worst as well was was about nine, I think nineteen eighty eight when they came back to the UK with a really stripped down show. There was no sort of really in terms of staging or or lights or whatever, but it was just so horrendously loud that it was almost impossible to stay in the venue because it was awful. And that's the loudest gig I've ever. And I've uh, unfortunately been attended because it was just horrible, and that's say, that's coming from someone who was who was there at Man of War when they broke the world record for being the loudest band. Saying <laughs> <laughs> something, I'm pretty sure Kiss were louder. <laughs> yeah, did you ever do? Did you ever go to a gig to review it, and the band were so bad? You said to Jeff, Jeff, I can't, I just can't do it. I can't review it. It's so bad. No, because that wouldn't be professional of me. I had to be honest. I can't really think of anybody that I, that, that off the top of my head that that happened to, but any gig that I reviewed, I did honestly, and whether it was good or bad. So I've never been, never been in a position where I've been sent to review something and it's been so bad that I couldn't review it. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, Dave. So how many of the Donningtons did you go and see in the, in the 80s and early 90s? Did you go every year? No, I've only ever been to two. It just—I was never really into that whole festival thing. Um, as bizarre as that sounds, because it's just, it, there was—I don't know—I just didn't really get into that whole getting yourself coated in mud, which invariably happened in the summer in England at those times, and, and rained on, and not only with with rain but bottles of piss as well. Never, never really got into it. So I only ever went to two, um, two um, Donningtons, which was 1987 when Bon Jovi headlined and Metallica and Amplex were on, on that bill. And the following year when um, Guns N' Roses and Kiss... Oh, you were at that one when the kids got killed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was horrible. And it was... It was you, could, you could tell that all was not right. It was just... It was... It was just horrible to to see. It was just it was just uh, that, that whole thing where people were just like climbing all over each other, and, and you know it, that that wasn't that wasn't a rock gig. It's, that just shouldn't happen. Yeah. Do you remember who told you that the kids got killed? Like, were you backstage at that time? Um, I think it was no. I was actually watching Guns N' Roses from the hillside because I don't, I wouldn't go down the front of those kind of things because I just basically didn't want to be drowned in bottles bottles of piss yeah all hit by bottles so um my girlfriend at the time um i was with her um watching them from from a little bit further out and but sort of like one of the further back where the hill bit was so that's where we were at the time but there was this huge scrum of people down the front and it was it was not a, a, a safe place for anybody to be at that point yeah do you think that's why you just never bothered going back yeah, and I don't like being hit by bottles of piss or yeah. rained or particularly standing out in the field all day with rain. Yeah, yeah. The worst, the worst um, gig in that respect was the was the Nebworth Festival in 1985 when Deep Purple headlined, and that just rained all day, and it got just covered in brown mud. Not as much as Dave Ling did though, because he actually fell um, getting into the backstage area from the front, and he was absolutely he went head first, so he was actually covered in this orange goo. Oh. <laughs> I remind him of it quite frequently. Oh God, yeah. So I I just want to finish up, Dave. Um, yeah. What ma- what made you le- when when did you leave Kerrang and what made what made you leave? 
Okay, I left Kerrang in 1998. Um, I'd kind of... What was happening was with the way that the music was going at that time, it was it was becoming more obvious that it was more going, that the direction the magazine was heading in a completely different um, direction to the kind of stuff that I was into, the kind of stuff that, that um, I was interested in writing. They did try to get me to interview people like Ice T and and and, uh, and other sort of like alternative types of bands, but at the time it just wasn't my thing. Um, I did write a piece on Nirvana, and I uh, sort of like a, a you know what had a year what happened the year prior to Kurt Cobain dying, and I felt I prostituted myself in writing that because I just didn't. I wasn't interested in the band. I didn't say I didn't, it's not to say I didn't hate and like them or I hated them. That's far from it. You know, some of that grunge stuff was just rock music to me. But I couldn't understand why they were not writing about other forms of rock music when it was all rock music. Just because, they, just because there was a glam band out there, why not write about it? Because you still have people who are interested in, in reading about it. They didn't, they didn't publish the Steve Perry and, and Boston stuff. So, why um it was still rock music at the end of the day but so my work became less and less um uh, around 90 uh, 1995 i went to live in sweden for a little bit but i didn't really work out so i came back had to get a job because the money i was getting from writing just wasn't enough to pay my bills and it became less and less and because i wasn't in the office as frequently as i used to be i wasn't getting the work because i was working full time um, so it just became less and less, and the, the, the sort of like the editorial team, the reviews editor, etc., they had all changed from the, the people I'd, I'd worked with previously. And when an, an offer came in from Dave Lynn to start writing for Classic Rock in 1998, I rang up Phil Alexander, who was the editor at the time, and said, "Phil, I'm, I'm, I've been offered this work with with Classic Rock. Um, I'm going to go for it." thinking that I'd still be able to, perhaps naively thinking I was still going to be able to contribute to Kerrang. But once I'd made that switch, um, for better or for worse, then I was no longer in, um, a writer for Kerrang. Um, yeah. That's fair, because I was then writing for something else. It didn't work out with classic rock. I won't particularly go into it. There's just no need to anyway, because we're in a different place now. It's gone 20, nearly 20 years since. So I'm doing what I'm doing now. But with Kerrang, it just slowly went to down to nothing and I just had to move on. Yeah. You you lasted a lot longer than me, Dave, because I think in ninety three or ninety four I was done because of the exact same reason you gave. Um they wouldn't cover the stuff that made the magazine big. It was like, oh we have to laugh at that now because we have to be seen to be trendy with all the newer bands. And I was like yeah. you're kinda of cutting your nose off to spite your face here. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I just didn't agree with it at all. So I just stopped buying it. Yeah, they felt at that point that they were that they the the publishers. I think it's all publisher led. They were kind of looking at NME at that time as the market leader. They couldn't understand why Kerrang wasn't selling as much as the NME. So therefore, if you put Def Leppard on the cover in the mid to late nineties, then there was a guarantee from that perspective that they weren't going to sell any issues that week. So therefore, they decided they'd put Nirvana or Soundgarden or Placebo or Therapy or whatever on the cover instead. 
it's like this, but that's what the fashion was like. And, you know, it's gone kind of come around full circle now and with the launch of Rock Candy Mag. Um, but it's, you know, it, that's that's what it, what happened back then. Yeah. Um, and that's what led to a lot of these fanzines coming out. That's what led to classic rock um, coming out. And, and it's, you know, we, we, are, we think we're now where we are. Yeah. Do you have do you have a favorite piece that you wrote for Kerrang that stands out for you that you're really proud of? Um, probably there were, there were quite a few. I think the Kiss feature that I did in 1988 was quite extensive, and and, and I got a lot of good feedback from that. Um, the Bon Jovi stuff was pretty interesting to do as well because it's always nice to get good feedback in terms of, of that kind of stuff. Um, there's no really one real one piece that stands out um, other than perhaps the Britney Fox tour story that we revisited at Rock Candy Mag a couple of issues ago because that sort of like was was just a, my introduction to a band on the road and, and it was everything that I expected it to be and more. Um, so that, yeah, the Britney Fox um, on the road piece in Texas is probably the one that perhaps I look back with most fondness on. Okay. All right, Dave. Well, I'm going to leave you go. You've given me uh, more than enough of your time, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And you, Richie. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll um, look out and listen to to the ones that you got coming up with with, um, with Mick and Crusher. Crusher was a legend. All right, Dave. Well, thanks for getting in touch with me anyway and uh, scheduling this. Really appreciate it. All right. Have a good rest of the night. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Richie. Bye. Bye. There you go. There is Richie's uh, last part of his interview with uh, with Dave Reynolds, which wraps up. Can you believe it? Our uh, our Kerrang episode and uh, to uh, to kind of I don't know, can't say celebrate, but uh, to get in on the action is uh, I got on the line. Richie, how we doing, man? I'm okay. Cool. Okay. Are you sure we're Are you sure we're done? No, I'm not sure we're done. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I think we I think we are. But, uh, you know, a, a really cool idea. I can remember that, you know, I think we were driving up. Uh, I think we were going up to see Tremonti. And uh, you, you came up with this, told me about wanting to do this. And uh, I thought, wow, that's a really great idea. I think it was I think it was the Tremonti show we were going to see. And, uh, yeah, I just was like, wow. And, and uh, you know, I know it kind of simmered for a little while. And, and then the next thing you know, you got really rolling and you managed to get a few connections and um, and really start getting the guests like crazy. Yeah, well, we had to finish um, Little Mountain, and uh, what, what what's happening with all these projects that we've done so far is uh, they overrun <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> and that's um, yeah, and that's uh, that's being kind because uh, <laughs> the original intention on all of them is to probably do one episode a month, mm. so you'd have three weeks of normal stuff and then a, a, an episode of a project, and. You know, even if you get ten episodes, that's a year, right. more or less. You're you're done. So, uh, but that, that didn't work out that way. Um, especially Little Mountain overran. Yep. Because um, we had, I think, it's just the amount of audio we had. Yeah, and I think even Strange had, Highway uh, ran over. Yeah, but, but the, the the thing about doing the projects, uh, you go in blind. You don't know if you're only going to get two people. Or ten people, right. and I've been I've been lucky. Um, I think we did ten episodes for Strange Highways. We probably did the same for Little Mountain and Kerrang. Um, I think we've done more ten. 
Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Well, no, this will, this, this will end up being number 12. It's kind wow. of 11 and a half, oh. but yeah, it's number 12. Yeah. Okay. But but um, I, think, I think what that shows, though, is that uh, you're, you've are you been pretty adept at, at picking subjects that not only do, do, do people want to hear about, but that people that were involved all want to get in on talking about it, too. Yeah, well, we've started off really well, I think, with Malcolm because, uh, you know, Malcolm is very well known right. as a writer. Um, and he gave me a lot of contacts and it kind of rolled from there. Um, and I think the word spread amongst the writers that uh, I was doing it because um, in the end, uh, Dave Reynolds actually emailed me asking, could he come on and uh, and do it, that he'd listened to... Uh, some of the, the past episodes and really enjoyed them. And of course I was sure like, <laughs> if I'm having writers contacting me, that that's, that has to be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, Dave was great. Uh, I think I spent probably about the guts of an hour and a half on the phone with him. Um, I think all the writers have been really good. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been fortunate that, well, I did all the interviews, but I've been fortunate that some of them actually live in the U.S. It, it made scheduling a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, Sylvie did two episodes with me. Yeah, she was great. Uh, Sylvie Simmons. Um, and Stefan, they both live in um, Los Angeles. Mm. So that was, you know, easier to schedule. Um, all of the rest of them were all in the U.K. Mick Wall was done at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And, and that that in itself right there, that was an achievement that we just kind of milestone a hit during this because you have tried to get Mick on the show uh, three, four, maybe five different times. And it was, I remember you, you know, basically coming back and Mick saying, all right, we're like, this is cursed. We're never going to be able to like do anything together. Like this just doesn't ever work out. And you finally managed to, to, to get him on this. And that was re- like a really good thing. And not only that, but being able to, to tie it out with our kind of our perennial guest and in, in, uh, in Joel MacGyver. Yeah. Well, getting Joel on was great because um, they're doing the dead rock stars podcast and yeah. that's gone really well for both of them. And Joel is my age. So Joel grew up with crying the same way I did. And right. I wanted to see how that, how that influenced him when he was a kid. Uh, he knows a lot of the writers. He doesn't know all of them right. that I've interviewed, but he knows a lot of them. Um, and I just wanted his perspective on it. And me, you know, and we get we get on well with Joel anyway. Oh yeah, you know, he's a yeah. friend of the show. Um, but I've you know, uh, one of the interviews I did now with Pete Mikowski, mm. uh, he's gone back and listened to uh, to some of the Kerrang episodes, and he said he loved the Crusher Jewel one. He said he was cracking up listening <laughs> to Crusher, and of course Pete was was coming up on a future show. Um, he worked from, for Sounds Magazine from 71, and then he, he wrote for Kerrang! until 96. Mm. So he was he's written for, you know, since 1971, he was 16 years old. That's not necessarily going to be a Kerrang! thing. That's going to be a career thing with him. But, right. you know, he's got a lot of Kerrang! stories in that as well. But it's great that some of the other writers are listening to what we're doing. Yeah. Because... Um, a lot of them have told me that nobody's ever done anything like this on Kerrang! And that blows my mind because 
that magazine was hugely popular. Um, one of a kind for a long time. Yeah. And uh, very important for bands and PR and record labels. And with all the media outlets now, I'm amazed that nobody has, uh, has tried to do something on on Kerrang! magazine. Yeah. Even, especially in a day-to-day. Even, even a lot of our other, you know, uh, comrades that do shows as well and people that that tend to, you know, kind of go into more of this genre of stuff too. It's very surprising that uh, they they never really picked up on doing this. So, yeah, it, it's actually, it's pretty cool. Yeah, but a lot of it, again, is look. I can go in with ideas on certain things. I, I've Every idea I've thrown at you yeah. are part of myself. Um, there's one or two of them, and every, they never even got off the ground. Yeah. I've just been looking at the, uh, at the tree we've done. Um came off and I don't know what, I don't think I'm going to do another one. Well, <laughs> um, not that I don't want to, it's, it's, it can be a lot of work. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, it could, it could be third times the charm. Now it's time to give it a rest. <laughs> um, we're not lacking you know, in audio. No, no, um, no, no. You know, I'd like maybe to do a little bit more discussion based episodes Yep. The thing, the thing with doing the project stuff is, you can kind of keep that on the back burner, and if you know, if you have something that's not, you know, pertinent for that time, you know, for now, a new album or a book release or something like that, right. you can throw in a project, and it always means that the discussion things that I'm always telling you about that I'd love to do more of, they keep they keep getting pushed back and more and more and more. So right. we'll, we'll see how. Uh, how it, how it all works out. I actually have no idea, no idea what for, for a new project anyway. I'm surprised. Um, I, I, come up with I have no, I haven't thought about it to be honest with you. Yeah. But it, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, and you're, and you're right. I mean, that's part of the, part of the whole like stretching out of things is the fact that we do, you know, we have a lot of things where there's, it's kind of a more pressing time sensitive thing. You're trying to help people promote things. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to help artists and, and authors and things like that. And, and so, yeah, we, we, we kind of have this built up thing with the project. When you think about it, we started this back on episode 315 and now we're on episode 395. So this was, you know, first wow. one was back in January of last year. So it's wow. taken us 80, 80 episodes to get here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I um I think I probably interviewed Dave Reynolds probably three months ago. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was a while now, back but... because you you mentioned, you know, or and stuff that I kinda edited out of the interview, but you did talk about some of the people that you had talked to we hadn't played yet and stuff like that and, and now it's to the point, yeah, where we've we've played everything. Um including everything you did post talking to him. But it was just I thought too that, that Dave's was it, it was a good summary of, of, of everything. There were ones that kind of had a lot of focus. You know, Crusher was very, was very focused and, and, and Mick was very focused. Sylvie was, was, you know, again, another one that was very focused, but Dave kind of was more of a, more of a summation of it all. So I thought it was a really good guy to, to stick on the end of it. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It just kind of things work out as you listen to the audio. Yeah. But the thing with Dave that I really enjoyed, um, he likes a lot of the bands I do. Mm-hmm. He's big into, and he, he hates the term hair metal as well, <laughs> but he's big into that. And you know, I love a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and he's met 
and interviewed nearly all of the bands that I love, and we got into all of those. Right, and that and that's um, really what you know what everyone hears on this this uh, you know the second half is a kind of you know with a kicking off with you know you kind of giving them that almost that you know train of thought throwing out artist and you know impression and have you talk to him and I thought that was a great kind of a great second half to his and the way you structured it and it worked out beautifully for this it's kind of a almost like a Dave Reynolds greatest hits or in some cases not so great hits um, way to end it. Yeah, I've had some of the writers hit me up um, after I've interviewed them uh, saying they forgot stuff. Yeah. And then they'll come back and say, I actually remember this and, and I remember doing that. And then I remember this. And then other guys have hit me up saying, I've, I've kept listening to the project. I really enjoyed this episode. And, you know, I'm looking forward to the next one. Let me know when the next one is up. You know, which is, which is great. Yeah. The only re- the only regret I have about doing this project and I did try and a lot of the writers named them. I, I couldn't get Jeff Barton. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, he replied once to an email and after that he didn't reply to any more. Now that's if he didn't want to do it, that's fine. We have more than enough audio <laughs> on Kerrang, but it would have been nice to, uh, to get Jeff on board because, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the writers named him as a huge help. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know Jeff. Uh, that, uh, uh, Dave, you know, that named him as like uh, you know a huge, a huge factor in his career and stuff. And yeah, and, and yeah, I would have be- thought that we we would have gotten him. I mean, we, as it was, it was really great that we got Malcolm on. And I thought, oh well, there's good hope. If we've got Malcolm on, then it's a really good shot. We'll get Jeff on as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you're right. That was kind of disappointing that we didn't get him on. Yeah, but you know, if he if he didn't want to come on, that's that's fine. And you know, I'm not I'm not going to. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not not that regretful about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah we got 10, 10 other writers to come <laughs> on. They're all they're all fair. We got all the other big names to come yeah. on. We got you know we got Dante and we got you know Xavier and we got you know, Sylvie and Stefan. And the, ma- the amazing thing for me is when you, when you look at all those people that wrote for Kerrang, what, where they went after right. they finished. Sylvie's written books. Stefan works now for Metallica. He does the fan club magazine and he does a lot of the interviews in that. Right. Um, right. Malcolm, of course, is a well-respected journalist in the, sh- in the genre. Um, Dave is still writing. And um, they're nearly all like Mick Wall is a huge name in rock journalism. Yep, yep. Um, and, I mean, they're, they're you, know, you got a bunch of these guys it. are doing rock candy now, and so which is great. You know, they can continue Howard, yeah, on Howard doing Johnson it. Howard Johnson is the editor, hmm. I think, for Rock Candy, and Malcolm was on board with that as well. Yeah. So they're all still fans. They're all still writing. Um, they all still love the genre, which is. Uh, which, which is a, which you know, which is amazing to me because you'd figure a lot of them might have actually gone and, you know, done something else completely different. Yeah. And they all still seem to be involved in it, which is which is great for us, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. It it is, in, but it's even amazing that just like still like, even you know, with all the changes in music and and especially with all the changes in in print media, that they're still you know they all want to do it and you know, there's. A bunch of them haven't been like, all right, screw this. This is ridiculous at this point. But the fact they're still out there, they're still doing it is, yeah, it's amazing. It's a, a tribute to them. Yeah, but the one thing uh, that I've loved talk, uh, talking to all these people 
they put all, a lot of the, the their best moments in context. Like there's nearly a, a before it happened and then after it happened. It's not just the interview itself. Mm. You know, they talk about what led up to it, what why it why it happened and all that. And w- one of the reasons I think I wanted to do a project like this is um like Mick Wall did a book called um Oh, I can't remember. It's Appetite for Destruction, I think it is. And he got a lot of these old Kerrang stories. Yeah. Um, and what he did was he did an intro on them, and then he did a coda on it. So he he, he he listed what happened before the interview. Then he ran the interview that was run in the magazine, and then he had, like, a conclusion piece on it. And I knew that they were, they were, all the writers had a lot of that. Right, and they were never able to put it in the magazine. And if I could ask them the right questions, I could get the information out of them. And like I, I got, a, got a lot of good stories out of them. Yeah, you definitely did. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that era is, um, you know, you're talking about eighties metal. That's the MTV era, and for a lot of people, including me and you know yourself, that's the holy grail. So if we can get people that are actually interviewing the bands back then and you know they were friends with a lot of the bands right to tell their stories that's go- that really is gold yeah and it is you know what's interesting too is is this 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 magazine kind of served as a bridge too because you know kicking off in what 81 that it's that's kind of pre-mtv where a lot of people, you know, it was print media to figure out, like, what to listen to next, to find new bands, to find who was coming, to find what was getting released. I mean, print media was where you had to go for that, you know, and then, but still, it's almost like the magazine got a little bit, like, got more irreverent and bigger as it moved into kind of that MTV era, where now you could see a lot of these people on your screen 24 hours a day, but you still didn't have the internet at that point, so you didn't really get a lot of the behind the scenes. All you got was that kind of that, oh, gee, I'll check out you know, oh, that van. What's that? Oh, they're in Kerrang. Okay. Um, but because so this is bridge of the, the non-visibility uh, to the uh, to basically all the way through the MTV area. And then it kind of like, well, for a good chunk of time, I kind of felt a shit. But uh, but it's just I think it's this this time period that you captured for this episode is uh, probably hits a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. You're talking about the biggest bands in, in in hard rock in the height of the MTV era, the mid to late 80s. Yeah. And Dave Reynolds covered all of them. Like all the multi-platinum, big time hair bands. He interviewed all of them in that time period. And he had, you know, he had some great stories about them. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So, so, but when you look back as well, the only magazine I could find anything out about Dokken and Rash and all, and the other bands it was Kerrang. There was nobody else covering them. I, I don't know whether the American magazines like Circus and um, what was the other one? Cream? Well, so yeah, like, well, there was, there was like Hit Parader, there was Circus and, and Circus was, you know, definitely Hit Parader was more the, you know, very stodgy mainstream, you know, the uh, Circus got to be a little bit more of, of, they had little bits and pieces in there where they would have kind of that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, Kareem was more, I almost call that almost like the American version of Kareem. Not, not to the variety and stuff, but more the, the irreverence and, and, and kind of the poking fun and, and all of the, 
that that kind of part that's in there. That's that was kind of the the cream part. Um, but you know, the the thing was though is kind of almost what you saw with you know, and you used to mention it too with with every every person you'd interview, every writer you kind of would bring out what their kind of personal preference was or what they tended to cover and all that. And, and the cream writers would have that kind of stuff too, where there was bands they preferred to cover and that's what they tended to cover as well. Um, so not as varied because they were kind of a little bit tighter about what they wanted to write about. So I think, you know, as far as overall, just most bang for the buck, what you were going to hear the most about and get most variety of and and also know like almost like podcasts today, you, you know, you listen to certain podcasts because you, you know, maybe count on what you know you you know what those what those podcast hosts like. So you kind of tend to listen to more of if they think say a band might be good, you go to discover them. Kerrang was almost was was that kind of providing that service. You knew this guy liked power metal, and and if he said that power metal band was great, and that's what you were looking for, you would trust him and you'd go get it. And and I think that was. That you know, Kerrang was probably the the biggest provider of that kind of trustworthy information. Yeah, well, ninety percent of the heavy metal bands, I wouldn't even know to look for their stuff yeah. if it wasn't for Kerrang in the first place. Yeah, so for me, a lot of the stuff because, like I said, you know, yeah, right with Cream, it was it was kind of more limited. Is it was really it was going to the you know going to the record store, going to the import bin, picking it up. You might look at a you might look for a producer, uh, but most of it was you know the initial thing was the cover. You know, and like, oh wow, it's a cool cover, and then and then go from there. Uh, but things like you know that initial initial Dokken album, um, you know, there was no coverage for that here. It was a matter of me finding that in the in the import bin, and going, oh wow, I'll check this out, and uh, and going, wow, and and then from there, that's when I knew about Dokken. But it was only from it was you know before any other big albums came out. It was it was in the import bin. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, um, anyways. Uh, I think we've uh, we've probably kicked this one around for a while. So, uh, like I said, man, great job with with getting all these people and, and getting this all coordinated. Another great idea by you, but uh, I think that uh, it's time to declare the Kerrang project uh, officially done. What do you think? We are done. <laughs> I'm done anyway. <laughs> unless um, unless one of the writers hits me up. Well, that's outside my control, but um, I'm not, I'm not going after any more of them. Yeah, we'll do a Jeff Barton super special, but uh, yeah, right. maybe, maybe he'll hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, anyways, we got we got more great stuff on the way coming up in in November, but uh, this is a wrap for Kerrang and and a wrap for October as well. So uh, again, yeah, thanks, I, I dude. Hope, I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Yeah, I hope everyone's enjoyed the Kerrang episode as much as I did. It was a trip down memory lane for me. Uh huh. Yeah. All right. Well, good. That is that is a wrap. Uh, once again, uh, wrap for episode three ninety five. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself and me, saying to have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.